part of our North Star is to try to mature the Chinese food ecosystem, try to tell the story that Chinese food isn't necessarily just, you know, General Tso's chicken or what um, people know as is American Chinese food. And so one, we're just looking for a great partner to help tell that story. Um, and Simu um, is probably one of the greatest uh, partners who we could find because he kind of has the same lived experience, um, also kind of third culture and and can really um, be a good partner. So that was kind of the starting point. And then to actually execute on it, um, I think we sent, we found a friend of a friend of a friend who knew his agent or who knew him and we sent uh, we sent a package to him. And I think he just told the story on Jimmy Kimmel Live, but he didn't actually receive the package. His parents received the package. I think they had taken some edibles and were very hungry. And so, um, so they demolished the package and then told Simu that they were delicious and you should invest. So, so he came on as an angel investor at first. Then over a year, we got to know him better and we're like, oh, he could um, play a much bigger role in helping us um, uh, improve the narrative of Chinese food. Um, and, uh, and that was the start of the relationship. Welcome to the Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, as we dive into the world of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on, whether that's YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or something else, click subscribe. To be kept in the loop of all consumer news, I also have a newsletter. You can subscribe at theconsumervc.com for episode updates and weekly deal recaps directly to your inbox. Please note, our content is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Caleb Wang, who is the CEO and co-founder of Mila. Mila is authentic soup dumplings, Chinese noodles, and chef-crafted sauces made fresh and shipped. We talked about how he and his wife, Jen, first started a restaurant and how that expanded to an e-commerce business and how they were able to raise capital, why they ended up raising, and much, much, much more. Without further ado, here's Caleb. Caleb, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Thanks, Mike, for having us. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, this is gonna be great. Really, really excited to talk about your your super interesting company, Mila. Um, want to start from the very beginning, I guess, with as regards to like soup dumplings. Can you give us a little bit about where um the kind of role of soup dumplings soup dumplings is kind of in the in the Chinese culture and maybe what like the equivalent food it would be on the maybe American side or maybe like a different type of cuisine um, in on, on your end. Even in Chinese culture, it's a relatively, it's a nostalgic food. It's pretty special because it's very intricate. And I would say the comp in the kind of any other cuisine is something that you really can't make at home. That's you appreciate the craft of. And so I think that's very different across different cuisines, but um, it's it's definitely like a special dish um, that is accessible in China, but it's just very special and to, and um, and people appreciate the craft of. Is it is it, is it typically a food that you found maybe like like on the like uh, that's um, like on the street or like or like more like kind of more on the um, like inexpensive side? Is it is it a bit more like upmarket? What's kind of like the the kind of role of the soup dumpling in that? Yeah, it's kind of everywhere. And it's actually funny, one of my favorite places to eat soup dumplings in Shanghai where it got started is in the middle of like a really big kind of historic Shanghai park. And there's a restaurant in like an island of it. It's called, it, it would translate to like um, 
like seven crooked bridges or something like that. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting because the restaurant has three different tiers, all selling the exact same soup dumpling. The bottom tier is very cheap, um, but the wait is like three hours long. Uh, and then at, and then the second tier is like a little bit more accessible. It's like a standard restaurant. And the third tier, no wait, very expensive, um, but the exact same food, right? And so all the same, it's purely like a wait and like ambiance time. So I think that speaks to how kind of broad the appeal is. Um, so you could you could kind of find it anywhere, and it's very common in China. But it's also this premium thing as well. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I'm a I'm a big soup dumpling fan. I, I I really do love like the texture of it, and just it's it's great. Can't even imagine trying to make one to be honest with you. It just sounds sounds so freaking hard. And I've seen people you know do it and everything, but um, it's um um unbelievably uh, challenging. So I guess you come from a finance background. Why did you and uh, uh, your wife Jen? Why did you both decide that you wanted to become soup dumpling entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think um, it was not a planned thing. It was during, it was something that we kind of stumbled upon. Um, we had started a restaurant as a fun side thing, and then during COVID, we had saw really good demand online for uh, for soup dumplings um, shipped, and so we decided to start this new company that focuses uh, focused on D to C shipping for frozen soup dumplings. I would say personally, my dad. Um, had opened up a couple of Mrs. Field franchises when I was young. So I worked in the restaurant space um, when I was growing up and as a teenager. And so that was like one piece that drew me to it. Uh, the second piece is I'd grown up in Shanghai eating uh, like a pan fried version of the soup dumpling, which is my favorite food. Um, and so it kind of was a coalescence of had some really good skill sets that I learned in finance, but this is like a really good passion project that was very culturally relevant. And there was something super interesting about working and maturing the Chinese food industry in America. And so both both me and Jen got drawn into it. Um, very uh serendipitously and uh it's been a great uh, journey over the past couple of years so it first started off as a restaurant and um and you had it going as a restaurant and then um and then covid hits um and um during during covid then you you decided to transition or 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 realize that maybe there's a market here on the ddc on the on the ddc side or selling online can you talk a little bit about that kind of transition that that you saw and also also too like going from a restaurant um a you know restaurant model to a um to an actual like cpg model um, um when it comes to your dumplings yeah totally so um for us it was a little bit different um uh, had started the restaurant as one entity and that was a fun kind of a passion project that we had done with a couple friends. Um, and then during COVID, what we saw is just so much demand on the e-commerce side. So we really decided to lean in, create a new entity and go after the D2C market. Uh, and that grew for two to three years. And what we found really interesting was um, there was just not that much good um, authentic Chinese food that people could just get delivered. Um, there's like sit down good dim sum restaurants in select cities, but it's just not accessible across all of the US. And so that's what the D2C market allows to unlock, which is just shipping really good frozen soup dumplings to anywhere's house. Um, obviously, as we think about a broader market, CPG allows us to make it even more accessible. So there's no like shipping costs, people don't have to buy $100 worth of dumplings. And so that's kind of the next leg that we're growing into um, starting this year. Was that was that challenging though on the on the CBG side? Because I'd imagine you're dealing with then frozen product 
um, on the Sudomi side. Talk to me a little bit about like if there were kind of supply chain challenges when it came to actually um, it, when it came to because um, it sounds to me like it's it, it, it sounds pretty complex because you're dealing with like frozen food products. You're then shipping the frozen frozen food products in like single um, uh, parcels rather than if you're doing wholesale and you're actually have you know pallets of it. So you're actually selling a truckload, which actually you know then might might, might offset you on the frozen side. Um, if you could speak to a little bit on like on, on the supply chain side too, that'd be really helpful. Yeah, totally. Uh, so you're right. It's super complex. Uh, and we have a very temperature sensitive product. Think of it as ice cream. So if it's just dips below a certain temperature for an hour, then it kind of goes bad. Um, so so we really overinvested in a couple of things, especially on the packaging and logistics side to make sure everyone gets their soup dumplings Um in good shape. Uh, so one of the first things we did was we invested in a lot of different warehouses because what happened during COVID is the reliability of the carriers like UPS and FedEx um, got worse because the uh, just the demand for shipping was so strong. So they, were ab- they weren't able to deliver reliably to um, the customers um, as reliable as in years past. And so our solve was just to get more warehouses so you could reach the same areas with more coverage. So we have five warehouses that ship products, whereas before two warehouses could cover the entire US. So that was the first thing. Uh, and the second thing on the packaging side, we really just overinvested in all the stuff that would keep um, keep the products present, whether it's you know specialized packaging or dry ice um, uh, or kind of just instructions. Um, and then the third thing is um, just data. So just collecting data on every single package, if it's delayed, proactively reaching out to the customers. Um, if we see uh, you know, different melt rates in certain regions, switching carriers or over-investing in dry ice in that area. So a lot of different things that, that we did to, to kind of set this up. And did you, did you on the supply chain side, were you, were you like more so vertically integrated in that you were producing all, all the dumplings in your, in your restaurant? Um, or, or did you also kind of have like outside help in terms of like a third party using that it, in terms of production? Yeah, so we actually have our own production facility. It's not made out of the restaurant. Um, uh, it, it was for, you know, in the very early days. Um, yes, uh, and then, so so that's all vertically integrated. And then we also, sh- like half of the warehouses that we use to ship product, um, that is also kind of our internal employees. How how also and and, and on the, how also did you think about maybe financing um, the DDC side and maybe what was like the first moment that you that you felt like oh wow this is actually working uh, was there like a, a like a revenue threshold or was there um, uh, something specific maybe it was it was the community that you were building got to like a certain uh, scale that you thought oh wow like there's a lot of organic kind of customers here growing what were kind of like the metrics that you, that, that you were kind of tracking that you that, that you then thought you and Jen were like oh my gosh this is this is like a real business. Yeah, totally. So the initial round, we financed ourselves. Um, and then luckily for us, the, the way unit economics work, um, there's kind of three buckets. There's the product costs, there's the shipping costs, and then there's the marketing costs. And I guess there's four, there's an overhead. Luckily for us, when we first started during COVID, marketing costs were so close to zero. And so we actually were able to bootstrap relatively efficiently. Um, and we were very inefficient on the product costs and the logistics costs. But because marketing costs were zero and there's so much inbound demand during COVID and the repeat rates were so good, um, it was relatively affordable to scale. And then when we looked at kind of the aha moment was really when uh, it was just the amount of organic demand from places outside of Seattle. That was really interesting for us. Um, the repeat rates were really interesting for us. 
Um, and then the third piece was the efficiency of Facebook and other paid channels um, were really interesting to us. You know, we were spending a very little amount, but we just could see that we could easily scale and efficiencies would still be there. Um, and then the last point was, okay, those metrics are all good during the pandemic, but what happens after the economy reopens? So we really waited until that place and we saw metrics were still good and that, um, that, that helped us realize this is a bigger thing. And then we took on some, um, some outside capital. How were your, in the beginning, like how were your marketing costs kind of close to zero or, or, or were zero? And also how do you, how are you able to kind of generate that, that lots of inbound? Yeah, I think it was, it was just a product that's a step function change better than what's on the market. Cause prior to this, you just couldn't get you know, soup dumplings at home. Like if you, you can go to a restaurant, um, but that's, you know, $2, um, a dumpling, you could, uh, get delivery, but then the soup dumplings aren't, uh, you know, the soup is congealed. So this is, it's relatively unique to have a CPG product. That's, you know, just so much better, um, than the kind of the market because it's, um, there's just less innovation potential, um, in, in a lot of different categories. So that ultimately drove word of mouth. Um, and then during the pandemic, because people couldn't go to restaurants, like the, it just is a product that resonated super well. So very high click-through rates, very high conversion rates on Facebook. So uh, cats were not zero, but like rel it's really, really close to zero. And so um, that helped fund the business. Cool. That's awesome. Um, no, that's great that uh, that CACs were close to zero, especially, you know, during these past couple of years um, when it comes to uh, marketing costs and, and everything that that's that's been going on with Facebook and Apple um, uh, and the in the um, in and the update 14.5 and everything. So um, that's that that's awesome. They're able to get close to zero. Um, how? How also did you ever feel like you needed to? Do you think that soup dumplings were were pretty um, a, as a product? Did you? How did you feel about? Do you feel like that it needed like um, expansion when it comes to your product in terms of who who what types of customers would actually appreciate and actually would like this um, this product, although they might not have have heard about it before or or tried it. Yeah, that was the kind of a learning process for us. Certainly, we didn't plan for soup dumplings to be a large, you know, skew or a large market. But I think the answer is enough people have, you know, traveled to China or traveled to the East Coast or been to some dump, dump some house that they really like this, this product. And um, it resonates with enough of the US. And so we often look at our customer data and um, kind of look at where our customers are versus the census. And it looks very, very similar. And so, you know, our conclusion is just, enough people have tried it and there, there's enough love for soup dumplings. So it's pretty broad appeal, which um, was a positive surprise to us. That's great. Um, and what, at what point did you, I know that you said that from the beginning, you, you financed it yourself until maybe you couldn't, or it made sense to bring an outside capital. What was, what was your approach when it came to actually raising that capital? And, 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 and in terms of your first round, at what point were you in your business scale wise? Yeah. Um, so the first round was inbound and we had gotten a couple inbounds already. And that was the point where um, I think for our business, like, okay, reopening has happened. Unit economics still looks strong. We believe that we found product market fit and there is a big need for something like this. And it's really exciting for us to achieve our vision of, you know, making good Chinese food accessible faster. And that was the decision point for, um, for raising the round. Um, so initially it was inbound um, and we were to call it three and a half million in revenue um, at that point. 
I heard that on the investment side, inbound was helpful. You saw that there was a big opportunity here that you imagined that you can actually build a much larger, um, a larger company, um, and that, um, and that you're still your your metrics, even even as things were opening up, as you know, restaurants or what have you were actually opening up, that your metrics were still pretty strong. So so it felt pretty like uh, a robust business that you're actually building. Yeah. So the the decision point for us was. Um, we had passed the reopening and the metrics were still good. And um, the metrics were good for frozen D2C shipping. And so that gave us conviction that when we got into the CPG channels, which are like theoretically easier um, from a margin perspective than D2C shipping, um, it would also do well. Uh, and so the then, then that capital, there's a lot of um, inbound interest at that point. And we're lucky enough to find a good partner uh, for our seed round. Are, did you decide to go into retail um, or, or or kind of remain? Um, uh, I know that obviously in retail, like the margins aren't as great, but at the same time, you're able to, from a volume perspective, typically um, go far and beyond. And of course, I think like 80% of, of, of grocery happens um, within retail and online. What was what has been your your approach when it comes to actually going omni-channel and, and into grocery? Yeah, totally. So yeah, our, our perspective is just meeting the consumer where, where it is. And our North Star is really good Chinese food as accessible as possible. So as part of that, obviously, uh, omni-channel is very important. Retail is very important. And so um, we stayed D2C exclusively until 2022. And then during 2023, effectively this year, we started um, getting into retail with the test and learn approach Um and just kind of seeing where it resonates, where it doesn't. And uh, next year will be kind of the big scale year into retail. Got it. And what, and what on the innovation side of the product, what was, what do you think, why do you think that there wasn't that much innovation when it came to soup dumplings, making soup dumplings, you know, taste delicious that uh, were traditionally frozen, found in like the frozen section of a grocery store, for example, versus what, what you all did? That's a very good question. We often kind of do a retro on for our next product, how do we make it as successful as soup dumplings? Um, not obvious, right? So I think the first thing I would say is like, what would be a standard approach for new product innovation? You probably look at spins data, you probably look at um, what sells in grocery today, and that's probably the category. And then you probably want to make a product that competes in that category. Well, right now there is no soup dumpling velocity in spins. Like it just like not a thing in Mula or natural. And so it's probably just doesn't even register to like create soup dumplings as a category. Um, that's like the first piece, right? It's just not um, that large of a market from the outside perspective. Um, the second piece is to do it right and to make the flavor profile very authentic. I do think you need a vertically integrated team, like on the R&D side who really understands the ingredients because the ingredients are so nuanced um, to not have a to make no compromises on the integrity of the product. That's a pretty hard thing to do. Um, and then also to have a production team in house who will follow the rigorous steps and the quality steps for making a good soup dumpling, because a lot of the steps are very manual. It's like, if there's a hole in a dumpling, it's going to leak and that ruins the entire process. Whereas for regular plastic or dumplings like that is not really a consideration. So there's a lot of um, care that goes into making a soup dumpling. And so it just, it's just really complex to set that up. It's unclear if the size of the prize is big, if you just look at current like revenue data. And so that's probably why um, no one has tried to do it yet. Got it. Um, and why, why talk to me a little bit about as well as you think about your, about Mila's kind of brand positioning and as well as why did you rebrand from um, XCJ to, to Mila in the first place? 
Yeah, totally. So XCJ was, it stands for Street Food Avenue. Um, and initially the restaurant actually sells Sinjin Bao, which is a pan fried soup dumpling that you see on the street. And that was kind of the scope of the restaurant idea and that name made sense. Um, but as we go into, as we just grow Mila bigger, um, XCJ no longer fit, right? It's first off soup dumplings, which is our hero product is not really a street food. It kind of goes back to the question you were asking earlier. Um, separately, the goal is to get a lot more broad. So we already have soup dumplings, noodles, um, sauces with ice cream. And so Mila was a really interesting name for us because in Chinese, it means sweet and spicy. And it really talks about how we can do, um, we're, we're participating in all of Chinese food, all the way from sweet to spicy. Um, and also it's a more memorable and um, easy to remember name for folks. Um, uh, and I think all those things kind of fit together. When do you think about category expansion since you are in different categories? How do you think about the rollout of that? Because of course, going into new, getting into new categories requires more complexity, um, and as well as you know, it's already like a, a quite a complex business with 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 being um, frozen or or have to be at a certain temperature um, from the shipping side, or else the product goes bad. Um, how do you think about? Um, obviously, I mean, it seemed like for the name um, sweet. Uh, um, the name you, you want to be kind of in multiple, multiple areas, um, uh, sweet and savory. How do you think about, um, what product expansion in, in, in general? Yeah. So for us, it's all about where we can add the most value for customers. And I think the freezer aisle, there's um, a lot of room for, um, expansion and quality products. And so for the short to medium term, we'll focus on the frozen aisle and just, um, and, and, and stay there. Uh, I think, we, you know, there's a lot of appetizers, a lot of meals that we can do. Um, and uh, the, the next step is certainly, you know, scaling soup dumplings. Can you talk to me a little bit about the role of, of uh, Simu uh, Liu um, and, and how you were able to, I guess, uh, start that relationship, build that relationship, and as well as, 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 well as how, we, how we became part of the company? Yeah, totally. So I think part of us, um, part of our North Star is to try to mature the Chinese food ecosystem, try to tell the story that Chinese food isn't necessarily just, you know, General Tso's chicken or what um, people know as is American Chinese food. And so one, we're just looking for a great partner to help tell that story. Um, and Simu um, is probably one of the greatest uh, partners who we could find because he kind of has the same lived experience. Um, also kind of third culture and and can really um, be a good partner. So that was kind of the starting point. And then to actually execute on it, um, I think we sent, we found a friend of a friend of a friend who knew his agent or who knew him and we sent, uh, we sent a package to him. And I think he just told a story on Jimmy Kimmel Live, but he didn't actually receive the package. His parents received the package. I think they had taken some edibles and were very hungry. And so, um, so they demolished the package and then told Simu that they were delicious and you should invest. So, so he came on as an angel investor at first. Then over a year, we got to know him better and we're like, oh, he could um, play a much bigger role in helping us um, uh, improve the narrative of Chinese food. Um, and, uh, and that was the start of the relationship. That's awesome. Um, how also do you think about, um, because most, I believe like most Chinese products, um, most Chinese food products, it's typically in the restaurant, um, that they make uh, the purchase. And of course, um, it's not so much in the grocery store. How are you, um, which I know is one of like the big themes in terms of, um, um, what also a big market that you're, that, 
that you're tackling. Um, but how do you think about also kind of changing people's perception when, when it comes to Chinese food and and getting them to actually shop um, for you know products like like soup dumplings and like sauces and and, and other things um, um, in store versus you know only having only thinking about it in like a restaurant perspective. Totally, a hundred. It's a great question. I think there's two elements to it. Um, the first element is um, I think a lot of ethnic foods. Um, there is a price ceiling associated with it. So like, hey, Chinese food in particular is like Chinese food's cheap. And then because it's cheap, the restaurant or the food manufacturer can't actually invest in quality ingredients to make it better. And then it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like a good, cheap food, <laughs> um, but it's like not super healthy or like, you know, it, it, there's no high ceiling for that food. So one of the things we're looking to do is change that. Um, and the Simu partnership helps in just telling the narrative and the craft that goes into Chinese food that allows us to invest in premium ingredients um, to make it um, kind of comparable to other cuisines. So that's like the first piece. Um, the second piece, and it's our observation that the restaurant market for Chinese food is very large. I think according to Yelp, according to Open Table, it's call it eight to ten percent of ethnic foods purchased. Um, but in the freezer aisle, it's like two percent. And I think the reason is because the products in the freezer aisle, the quality bar is just relatively low and it doesn't help you replicate the Chinese food experience at a restaurant. And so if you're actually able to make restaurant quality Chinese food, that 2% should become more parity with the 8%. Um, and, um, and that's just share creation and incremental velocity to the retailer. I had a previous guest who, uh, Gail Becker from, um, who was the founder of Collie Power, and um, she had uh, she sold her first product was um, Collie Power pizzas, and she was saying how getting in a freezer is like the the most competitive um, spot in a grocery store because of course there's only limited you know freezer space there's only only limited amount they can do I mean obviously there's off, uh, there's obviously limited shelf space in general but but freezer is not. I know that you have like a, as you mentioned, like a big rollout kind of coming in here on like 2024, but how those, how are we able to kind of get, you know, your brand within, within freezer, which is a very, very kind of like competitive spot within a grocery store, especially in a category with, um, that, you know, is very much overlooked Chinese food, but to the, to the retailers, are they also seeing that it's overlooked or what, what are those like conversations have gone? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think the first thing I'll mention is we have a great team on the retail side to, uh, manage those conversations and tell the story. So without them, it, it would be very hard to execute like this. Um, and in the backdrop, we really, here's kind of the buyer's perspective. Asian food is the fastest growing ethnic channel within food. The freezer aisle is growing very quickly and this huge wholesale change across all types of food to um, it, it just kind of a better restaurant quality food in the freezer. That's a, a huge theme. And Asian food is like a quickly growing thing, right? So we're playing in a good space right now. Um, and then you layer on top of that, like who are the emerging brands that you want to back? Well, we have a really good social following. We have a really large DTC business. So we're bringing incremental customers to folks. Um, and that's a huge advantage. Then they taste the product and they're like, oh, like it's really good. Um, and then now that we are actually in retailers, our velocity story is very strong. We're performing um, quite well on spins and in club and in the top kind of 10, 20% of SKUs. And so now that we have that data, it's even easier to have these retail conversations. Would you go on Amazon? Um, it's tough to go on Amazon because uh, frozen items don't typically have a home in Amazon. Um, like people aren't used to, you know, buying frozen products in Amazon. 
Amazon doesn't have um, frozen uh, uh, Amazon Prime. And so FBA, it's just like not a got it. Yeah, it's just like not a thing. So we've looked in it. We think the revenue opportunity like is just not that big. Um, and the complexity is relatively high. So if we had a shelf stable product, I think we would go on Amazon, but it doesn't really make a ton of sense for a frozen product, at least today. That's really interesting. It makes sense. And I think that also one of the benefits from a customer perspective of why you use Amazon, of course, you know, obviously the search bar in Amazon is um, um, is huge in terms of um, having that kind of customer intent that, that people want your products. But from a brand perspective, I'd imagine if you can't capitalize on Amazon FBA and, and the two-day shipping um, opportunity, then um, then from a company perspective, they might, might not even shop for you, for example. So Amazon might not even be worth it. Can we talk a little bit about how you think about partnerships too and in, in your approach to partnership? I know, for example, you have one partnership with um, um, a noodle kit with like Impossible Foods. Um, how do you, how do you think about overall, like partnering with different types of food brands in, in, for your own, uh, products? Uh, yeah, totally. So I think, um, we're just trying to create a one plus one equals three situation. And so in that particular case, um, we felt like very few Chinese brand food brands have prioritized, um, the vegetarian crowd, uh, just because it's not really a big thing in China. And so there's not that many recipes. And so, um, so that, so we felt like with the partnership with possible foods, we could access, um, and create a product for that audience. So that's the first piece. Um, we also do do partnerships with other, uh, folks like uncle Roger on he's a YouTube influencer and we're coming out with a new product with him. Um, and, um, it just, you know, opportunities to create surprise and delight and unique uh, moments for our customers. Um, so we're, we're trying to get creative with a couple more partnerships as well. How also do you approach kind of community in the, I know that you do um, a lot of content um, as well. What's what's the overall theme or, or, or approach when it comes to maybe your, your overall content strategy, um, as well as, you know, maybe like influencer partnerships or partnerships with, um, with, uh, with, with creators? Um, how do you, how do you and Jen think about it? Yeah, so I think um, it's really with the North Star of educating folks on um, Chinese food. And so uh, it can be a couple of different pillars, right? The first pillar could be like how to content and um, and really educating the customer on that. So we have like a really good series of like, can you steam soup dumplings with X? And it just, there's like a, there's like a 40 part series of that. And so eventually... Um, the end goal there is to make the steamer basket not a foreign object. Um, whereas maybe 10 years ago, like very few people in the U.S. might have a steamer basket. Um, and over time with education and kind of selling a bunch on our site and um, and educating that a, a vegetable steamer is the same as a bamboo steamer. Like our hope is ultimately that's just a tool that becomes more well-known in, in American kitchens. Um, so that's like the first pillar. Um, I think the second pillar could be um, things, uh, just more, um, um, uh, I, I would say like recipe content, um, and just educating folks on what is Chinese food. Um, so there's a whole pillar there. And then, um, uh, we also don't really take ourselves too seriously. So there's a lot of, um, kind of just funny and engaging content. Like we did a Halloween trick or treating with soup dumplings, uh, that did quite well, um, uh, very recently. So, um, that's, that's kind of our thought process. How do you also think about the overall brand positioning when it comes to Milof, maybe from like a a a um a price perspective? Um, do you consider yourselves like a like a like premiumly priced compared to competitors? Um, how um how how overall do you think about like y yourselves? 
Yeah, totally. So our mission is how do we make the best Chinese food possible? And so um, our brand positioning, what we want people to get across is like, this is the best Chinese food I could possibly get in my house. And I, these guys really care about quality. These guys really care about quality ingredients, doing business the right way, um, customer service. And as part of that, it's not cheap to make sure the quality is high. So we are premium priced, uh, but not overly so. So the, it's, we make a good margin, um, but we're investing the majority of the price into stuff that makes a product, product good. Um, and we're, but we're not like that much more than um, the competitors on the, on the retail side. We're probably one of the more premium products, but it's not like a 2X, 3X type thing. It's somewhat difficult on the pricing side when, because um, when I think about soup dumplings initially, I think about going to a restaurant, um, Shell and Bao, which is not that far away. And, you know, kind of like that whole experience, which is a wonderful experience. Um, from a price standpoint, do you also need to make sure that, hey, like we're not priced too high and that, you know, we're still cheaper than going out to a restaurant and kind of enjoying it, you know, a, a fresh a, a fresh versus, you know, obviously you have the convenience of being at home, but it's, you know, it, it, it is it is ultimately still like a, a, a packaged frozen food. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think um, on the retail side, we're always thinking about it on a per ounce basis. And so from like that perspective, maybe we're 20% more expensive than your standard dumpling. Um, so that's like one perspective to think about it. And then we also think about it is it's really a replacement for the restaurant. And so uh, from that perspective, we're like 60% cheaper than a restaurant. And you get it, it's actually better quality than most restaurants with delivery. And then offset by the fact that you need to steam it at home. However, people seem to enjoy the experience. It's like a, it's a, one of our target demographics are like hero parents where it's like, hey, I actually made this food for you guys. And um, it's kind of a fun, impressive thing that hey, I steamed up these dumplings um, for the family. So um, that's kind of how we think about the price, architecture and value. Do you ever think of Mila? Obviously, you're a um, um, I know this started off um, um um, as part of the restaurant now, of course, it's 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 become um, its own separate entity um, focused on CPG. But do you ever see uh, uh, see Mila also expanding into actually have like their own restaurants when it comes to Chinese food, or 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 probably not? Um, I think we're open minded because the North Star is making good Chinese food as accessible as possible. Um, it's not currently on the roadmap, but there we can we have talked about. Hey, do we want um, kind of. Uh, experiential locations in major cities to really just communicate the brand and communicate the experience, um, whether it's New York, LA, um, uh, th things like that. So it's, it's been talked about, but not, a, not a current focus. And are, are, are you finding that like on the, um, um, in terms of maybe overall in the U S on um, the D since of course, DTC, you've you've access to first party data that there are specific pockets in the U S that maybe are, um, um, enjoy, um, or, you know, are, are kind of bigger, uh, bigger customers for you all versus maybe other, uh, other parts. We try to do the analysis. It's not obvious. It really just looks like the census. Like it, it it's, it's pretty, it, it's, it's not like East coast. It's not like it's, it's very, it's very sporadic, very broad. Um, we kind of had this theory that we would have better retention in Asian food deserts as well. Um, and that seems to be holding true. Um, just because it's like, where else do you go get it? This is, um, and especially we do well for people who have transplants, uh, transplanted from like New York to Salt Lake city, where they're really used to really good Chinese food restaurants. And maybe there's now in a city due to COVID that, um, there, there's less Chinese food. Um, but if you looked at a map for our customer base, it would just look like the U S population.
on the e-commerce side, what are maybe like the two metrics that you are tracking very closely or are, you know, the, the most important to you at, in, in this current stage of the company? Totally. It's, uh, it's CACs, number one, and then 12-month retention is number two. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? It's a good question. Personally, probably uh, anything that David Goggins writes. Um, so that's just hilarious. And actually, maybe his YouTube shorts are even better um, because you just get that snapshot. Um, and then professionally, definitely Shoe Dog. Uh, and the, the whole thesis is like, it just always feels hard, um, even when they're like big and they're even signed Jordan and it still felt hard. So it's like, okay, great. That's just how it is. <laughs> Uh, this is awesome. Um, well, well, Caleb, thanks so much for your time. Really, really appreciate you you chatting. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Great questions, and I enjoyed the conversation. And there you have it. It was a pleasure having Caleb on the show. Caleb, thanks again so much for coming on. If you're enjoying this content on whatever platform you're listening to it on, please hit subscribe. That really helps a lot. And if you also want to be kept in the loop of consumer news, I have a newsletter. You can subscribe at theconsumervc.com. And that gives you weekly deal recaps of all the consumer fundraisers that happened in that week, and as well as new episode updates of when, when new episodes drop. Friendly reminder, this content is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Thanks for listening.